This is Three Valleys Radio. The heart is a bloom Shoots up through the stony ground There's no room And it's time for another of our In Conversation series. In this town You're out of luck Each week we catch up with a present or former Yobotown player or a celebrity fan to discuss their life within the sport. And we catch up with a bit of their favourite music as well. And this week we're joined by a Fleet Street sports journalist, no less. Graham Nicholas was possibly responsible for Gary Johnson joining Yonville Town many, many years ago. He's followed the team ever since, reporting for various newspapers, including The Sun. And he joins us today to give us an insight into what it's like to be a sports journalist. Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the show. Tonight, we're a little bit off the beaten track in that we've got a Fleet Street journalist with her, or maybe we should say a whopping journalist, because he is quite big. Good evening, Graham Nicholas. How are you? Good evening, Aidy. It's a real pleasure to be on your show. <laughs> Sounds like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had to be enthusiastic as best I could, yeah, knowing well, you as I do. With all the enthusiasm you could muster, eh? Well, I mean, um, I wasn't exactly a whopping boy um, because I was a freelance. I worked for the Sun and the News of the World, but not a staff. So um, I was based either in Bournemouth or Berkshire. But uh, I know where you're coming from. So were you into all this phone tapping? No. That was news journalism. <laughs> now, 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 now. But no, and but... I have to say here, I... I, I Worked for the News of the World for many years, and uh, I still find it a, a great shame. I'm not condoning what happened there. They weren't the only newspaper that did certain things, but um, I do find it a shame that uh, they were folded up as they were because I had many good times reporting for them. Well, we'll take that on board, Graham. We'll definitely take that on board. Now, listen, um, your probably main claim to fame amongst our listeners down here on Three Valleys Radio is the fact that you were the man uh, initially responsible for Gary Johnson joining the club. So you better tell us all about it. How did you get to know Gary? How did it all transpire? And how did we end up with him becoming manager? Well, to be honest, um, in my study here, I've got pictures of all sorts of uh, celebrities that I've been with. But I, this is one, if, if this is probably, this, this story is really important to me because um, as a journalist, as you know, AD, we're reporting the news. We are interviewing the celebrities, getting the news. It's a wonderful job. But I have to say, in this aspect, I had a very, very, very tiny aspect, very tiny um, task in helping the news. Um, um, I was a, a dear friend of mine. Um, 
I've been in Fleet Street since the early 80s. Uh, I joined a magazine called Football Weekly News and I met uh, Gary's uncle, John Griffin. Griff, uh-huh. as he's known in the business. And he has been my friend for, what, 40-odd years. Yeah. And it through Griff that I met Gary, heard about Gary, told me to look out for him. Uh, I think I interviewed him once or met him at Cambridge. And then out of the blue, I had the chance to go and see Gary in Latvia when he was the Latvian coach. And uh, for their World Cup qualifying game against Belgium, and I went out there and met him, got to know him very well, fabulous character. And it was just a few months after that that I was reading the non-league paper um, and I saw that obviously Yeovil were looking for a manager and I was talking to Gary at the time and I said say to him, look, Gary, he said, uh, I need to get, what, what do you think I need to do? I said, well, you're out of sight, out of mind over there. You need to get back to England as soon as possible. He said, well, get me a job. <coughs> And I went, well, looking at the non-league paper, I said, well, there's a vacancy at Yeovil. And he went, go for it. Right. And I went, well, hold on, Gary, you, you can't become an international, you can't be an international manager and then drop down to the to the uh, conference, to the non-league. I wasn't being disrespectful to Yeovil. It wasn't really a move that you would see in football. And he said, no, it's a club I can operate top to bottom. Um, it, it's a perfect club for me. I can, you know, I, I can use my character will help form that club. And I went, OK. And so, therefore, that was the start of it. Um, I uh, got in touch with the club, sent some videos, and it got through to John Fry. And then I was out one day, and uh, Gary, Gary um, we managed to get Gary a quick interview. I said to the chairman... Um, uh, we managed to get Gary Quinn interview down at uh, Hewish Park because he was going off on a cruise. Mm, so, it. yeah. That's right, yeah. Just, yeah. Carry on. And so we just organised that and uh, Gary had the interview and off he went on the cruise. And I always remember I had this little machine called an Amstrad emailer. I don't know if you've, uh, AD, if you've ever seen one, but it was like a telephone but it had a little tiny keyboard on it and you could send emails on it. It was it was so antiquated. And I was sending Gary messages on the ship. Right. And I read <laughs> I read that Yeovil were look, talking to two other managers and it looked as though he didn't get the opportunity. And um, I, uh, in the end, um, I got a call from John Fry and uh, said he'd got the job. So I was able to, on my little emailer, send him a little message to his ship to say, Gary, congratulations, you're the new manager of Yeovil Town Football Club. And the rest, as they say, is history. A bit of history, yeah. But John Fry, who's a dear friend of mine, and I was only speaking to him a couple of days ago, fabulous chairman. I know he's, he's left there now, but his heart and soul was in that club. And I have the most admiration for him. He uh, he always reminds me that I did say to him when he was umming and ahhing whether to give a <laughs> Gary an interview or not. I said, Chairman, don't make the greatest uh, uh, error of your life. You know, you've got to give him an interview. And uh, so I played my little tiny part. Now we've got the first of Graham's choices of musical tracks. And this will surprise you a little bit. Let's leave it at that for a minute and you listen to the track.
thought you'd probably expected you were in the middle of a war film there didn't you because it was the band of the RAF and it was the theme music from 633 Squadron which was certainly a little bit different to what we've had in the past on this show but to be fair as you'll find out as we move on through the show um I think Graham's choices of music are really, really good this week, so we'll see what you guys say. Well, now, being a, a journalist for a number of years that you have, you must have some great tales to tell, and, and having met some, some really interesting sporting people, you know, give us a few. I, I know for a fact um, you, you did have a, a fairly big involvement with F1, so what, what, can you, what can you tell us there? Can you give us a good story from F1? Yes, I'll give you several, but um, when I uh, joined the Daily Star uh, in the early 80s, uh, they seemed to ask me to do snooker for them, and it was the halcyon days of snooker then. It was drugs, sex, and rock and roll. It was some fabulous stories. They were mm. getting some of the biggest figures on television at the time with Alice Higgins, Jimmy White, Steve Davis. It, it was wonderful times to be there. Um, but in Formula One, I was also asked to do Formula One as well. Not on a regular basis. I wasn't doing every race, but I was going out to uh, quite a few in Europe. And, um, yeah, I absolutely uh, enjoyed both. It took me away from home a lot, which wasn't too clever on my wife, Leslie, because um, we had three young girls. But I loved, I loved that period. Um, yes, well, I got to know Nigel Mansell quite well. In fact, I'm still in touch with him uh, on a regular basis. And I was lucky enough to see him win, um, lead his first race in Monaco, uh, get on the podium for the first time in Dijon, win his first race at the Brands Hatch of Europe. Um, I also saw him win the world title, his first and only one in 92 in Hungary. Uh, in fact, I always remember that day because um, literally within two or three hours of him winning it, which was a marvellous feat, because we knew he'd lost out three times and the fans loved him, the people's champion. Uh, I had to go up to him uh, in the uh, pit lane afterwards and I had to ask him um, something we'd heard on television and my office asked me to ask him and said, look, Nigel, you've won the world title, but Ayrton Senna is uh, saying to people, uh, apparently to James Hunt had told... Uh, uh, t said on television that Ayrton Senna will drive your car for nothing next season, the Williams. Mm -hmm. Senna was so desperate to get in the Williams because it was an all-conquering Williams car. Yeah. There was Senna offering to drive for nothing, and Alain Prost, uh, obviously because they had the Renault engine, he was manipulating things behind the scenes to get the drive for 93. Right. So there was me having to ask this world champion, newly crowned, that question, and he answered me as best he could. And it was the beginning, well, it was it was the beginning of the end of Nigel Mansell driving for Williams, which was absolutely outrageous. Mm. And in the end, he went to America, and I followed him over there and had wonderful times uh, was, following him over there. Was that, Luca, was that before right. he drove for Ferrari or after? Well, that was after. After, yeah. right. It, uh, it already... Uh, driven for Ferrari. I remember the day I was working for the European newspaper at the time, uh, AD. Um, you probably don't 
think that I do write for highbrow newspapers, but uh, <laughs> I did at that time. They sponsored the Benzlin car. Yeah. And um, I remember him retiring from Ferrari and Bernie Eccleston walking past me. And it was because um, Nigel was fed up with the politics going on with Alain Prost and he suddenly decided to retire. And Bernie Eccleston walked past me and I said, Bernie, can I have a quick word with you? He said, what about? I said, uh, Nigel Mann. said, what about him? I said, he's just retiring. No, he's not. Yes, he is. I said, he's just in there talking to the world's press now. He's retiring. He said, I won't let him retire. He said, I don't want boring racers like Alain Prost. We need people like Mansell to put bums on seats. I said, well, can I do an exclusive with you later in the week? And he said, yes. And that was the beginning of the... Uh, that was Bernie really doing his best to keep Nigel in Formula One. And in the end, he went to Williams. Oh, the well, now, the second of uh, Graham's musical choices, and this one's got connotations towards Yeovil Town, because I'm sure most of you that have been going on a fairly regular basis will remember this one when it was played when we scored a goal. So listen to this. It's the Dave Clark Five and Bits and Pieces. Clark Five there and bits and pieces. Remember Dave Linney used to come out and shout out the goal and that would be played. Now I think if I remember rightly you also said you were quite pally with Dennis Taylor, yeah? Yes. Um, well, to be honest, uh, in our snooker days uh, we used to <coughs> stay in the same hotels, travel with them, they went on overseas tours, we were there with them and you know we, we had quite a good bond with them because we were travelling around like a circus with them you know a mm-hmm. week here a week there two weeks at the world final and the year he won the famous black ball final against Steve Davis um, which had what nearly 20 odd million watching it in the early hours of the morning Monday morning um, that beginning of that year uh Dennis was uh, in Spain. He won this tournament in Spain. 
And I thought, oh, that's good, he's playing well. And then he won at Reading, and I had a little bet on him there. And in the end, he got to the final. And I don't know if you remember, um, he used to wear these up-down, upturned glasses. That's right, yeah. Yeah, I do remember. Unusual. He loved it. Yeah. And um, and then Dennis, obviously, I, I can't remember the full details now, honey, what was something like seven frames to one down or something like that after the first session. And then he came back and started rolling in Steve Davis. Some people have said to me over the years that it was uh, it was fixed. Now, Steve Davis wouldn't give anything away to his mother or anybody. So I can assure you it wasn't fixed. Yeah. And Dennis just got on a roll, and it was the one of the most fabulous sporting events that I've covered. The the uh, In the Crucible, in the press room, the atmosphere you could cut. Mm. you know with a knife it, it was unbelievable in fact I do like to have a bit of fun and I remember diving under a desk screaming out I can't take it anymore I can't take it anymore <laughs> because we were, we were getting early hours of the morning we were, papers were waiting for our stories and Dennis kept coming back and back and back and it was probably um, not wouldn't say my biggest story but certainly one of the most dramatic stories of, of my career and in the end, he won it, of course, and um, pandemonium broke out because it was one of the most thrilling sporting events of all time and a huge TV audience. And Dennis was a lovely bloke. And I remember him, um, I wrote a piece about him um, saying something like, uh, Dennis uh, Taylor, with his upturned glasses, has done his best to bring the smile back into snooker mm. because there was a lot of... Uh, sex scandals and drug scandals in the sport and Dennis a lovely personality um, he appreciated that comment comment and he actually put it in his book oh yeah um, and I, I'm, I'm pleased with that I'm pleased with that quote because I think Dennis was pleased with it that he did do his bit to bring the smile back to snooker absolutely I could remember watching that game and it, it was as you say it was to say it was tense was an understatement that was for sure it just sort of, oh. you just couldn't believe it really but I mean there's throughout sport there must have been other occasions I don't know football I mean one springs to mind is my beloved Manchester United for example in, in uh, Barcelona I mean uh, you know uh, a goal down for virtually the whole game and then suddenly we win it 2-1 I mean who could have expected that to happen no, you know, it must have taken you, what, 15 minutes to mention Manchester United, yeah, AD. Yeah. You're losing your touch. I know, mate, I know, but, you know, one's got to try. <laughs> well, I haven't got, I mean, I have got a couple of stories on Man United, but I didn't really, be, being a Southern-based journalist and in Fleet Street, um, I think I mentioned to you uh, before that uh, there was a group of us, like uh, the late Brian Warno, Nigel Clark. We were called the Beastie Boys. And our job was to get the back page leads. Um, and I was privileged to work with those two guys. They're fabulous writers, uh, news writers, news hounds. And I learned a lot from them. Um, and I remember, I think it was the, um, you'll, prob you'll probably correct me on this. I think it was a 1996 FA Cup final. Uh, beat a certain, was it Liverpool? Um, 1996? I mean, 96, yes. Eric Cantona scored a fabulous... Oh, that was volley. that one. Yeah, yes, I, yeah, that was right at the end, wasn't it? When he sort of some, somehow swivelled and smacked it in, yeah. It was a beautiful goal. I just mm. looked it up this morning. Mm. And uh, I uh, was covering the match for the Sunday Mirror. I just joined them as their chief football writer. And 
I remember being in the press room afterwards and Sir Alex came in and my question to him was, uh, Sir Alex, uh, were you a bit concerned by what happened to Eric Cantona as he walked up the, uh, uh, the Wembley steps because a fan tried to aim a punch at him? Yeah. And uh, he never connected, thankfully. But uh, and, and Alex sort of just shrugged it off, saying, oh, no, no, I don't want to get involved with that. And, and to be honest, I've been around a long time. And I said, well, Sir Alex, all due respect, I think you ought to answer it because the safety of the players is paramount. And uh, somebody's got to bring it to, to the head and say this can't happen again because a, a, a player could get badly injured. And then he did turn around and gave me a good answer. Yeah. Uh, I think it was my back page lead at the time. But, uh, and I, don't, I remember another time, Sir Alex, whenever I did bump into him, he'd always sort of say hello, which was nice because I wasn't one of his regular beats up, yeah. up north. Yeah. But he always said hello. And I do remember um, he signed, um, I think it's when they got the treble, uh, he was doing a book signing session and I got him to sign uh, a book for, uh, he came to London for the book signing session. I got him to sign the book for my eldest daughter, Sam's boyfriend at the time. Um, it was his birthday coming up and I got it for him and, you know, he was delighted with it. Mm. And then he dropped her a few weeks later, which I wasn't too <laughs> pleased about. <laughs> An irate father, I can imagine that then. Wouldn't like to I see you irate. Happy, I did get on well with him. He was, was a good lad. Yeah. Good lad. More music now. And this one shows your age, Graham. This is Woodstock by Matthew's Southern Company. <laughs> songs and celebration 
Matthew Southern Comfort there and Woodstock. I don't know whether Graham was actually down at Woodstock with his flowers and his flower power or not, but it's a good song. But look, this is a this is a very much a, a football orientated radio station, and as such, you've followed Yeovil amongst others for many many years now. Um, what are your your Yeovil highlights apart from obviously getting Gary the job? I mean, what other matches uh, ring you know spring to mind from from your reported days? Well. Um the beautiful thing about it was that when Gary got there in his first season, they won the FA Trophy, which I think was their first major trophy they won. Mm. And it was a wonderful day, you'll remember, AD, a wonderful day going up the night before. Because I had played my little part with, uh, uh, with Gary getting the job, I, I was well looked after by the club um, and because good friends with Gary and I was allowed to be in the hotel and I was with the group of the backroom staff in the evening having a, the odd Guinness or two beforehand. Mm, or three um, or four you know, or five or six. I, Sorry, no, yes. No, 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 I like the odd Guinness. Um, <laughs> and then, um, in fact, I think John Fry over the years kept the Guinness on in the boardroom just for me when I popped in when I was there. Actually, the actually, can I correct you there? Um, I can remember that session very well. We were in the hotel. It was late, but it wasn't Guinness that you were drinking. It was Murphy's. Oh, good spot. Hey. Oh, well, whatever, yeah. Well, they didn't have the Guinness on then, so I yeah. got the Murphy's. That's right, you were getting the Murphy's down your neck. That's what that would happen that night. Well, and it was Morris well, O'Donnell was with us there, do you remember? 
Do what, sorry? Morris O'Donnell was with us at the table. He was, yes, a group of us. Yes, we had a... And, of course, it was a lovely weekend because, obviously, the result was great and uh, the atmosphere in the the, um, dressing room afterwards, it was uh, a great win for Yeovil because it was their first major trophy. I've got a photo somewhere. I haven't got it up on my wall here. I've got a photo of me and Gary with the trophy because that was his first trophy. Uh, And it was just wonderful. Wonderful for the club. And wonderful for Gary, because don't forget, and you might remember this lady also, that when Gary arrived there, it was Gary Who in the local newspaper. Yeah. Because he had been a Cambridge assistant manager and Kettering, and he went to Latvia, but no one knew much about him. And so he made his imprint, um, stamped his imprint on the club the very first season, which which was wonderful. And, of course, the next season, of course, he then went and won the... uh, Title, right. title in record-breaking style. Yeah. In fact, I looked it up today. I did. I forgot how much he did it. It was like nineteen points, That's so right. seventeen-point winning margin, yeah. a record, and they topped a hundred goals. Yeah, and which was remarkable. And I remember, I think it was at Cambridge. I'm just trying to think now. I think it was well, oh, Doncaster, wasn't it? Sorry, I don't it know what. You, Don- what's the question? When they got the title. Was that yes, it was Doncaster. Title? Away to Doncaster. The, the, yes, it was an early kickoff, or was yeah. it? A, it was either an early kickoff or a late kickoff. I think maybe maybe the rest of the league was early. And I know that we knew we were champions before the game kicked off. That's right. Yeah. Another result came in. Yes. Yes. And they won up there, and it was it was just wonderful because, uh, well, in the football league for the first time in 108 years. Um, I was only discussing that with John Fry the other day. Now he's so proud of, of that moment, and yeah. and I said to him, "Don't ever forget it, John, because you know John's had his critics over the years, which is unfair because he's put so many hours of his life into that club, <laughs> and he was there at the helm. You know, they nearly folded, and he brought them back up uh, into the football league, and then um, into the championship. Gary's second spell." And uh, the greatest period in the club's history, and, and John was very much part of that, and must take a lot of credit with with Gary as well. And I've perhaps suggested they both should have a statue outside of Hewish Park. <laughs> of course, Gary was always going on about his statue, wasn't he? That was one of his. Uh, <laughs> he was always yeah. on about. I want a statue. <laughs> yeah, he wants a yeah he wants a statue. Yeah, and. Uh, of course, he hasn't got much hair left, so it'd be nice and flat on top. It won't, it won't, it won't take much to carve it out, will it? If you happen no, to be listening, I mean, Gary, I didn't suggest the, the the reference to your hair at all. So um, just just so as you know, it was nothing to do with me. Okay, no, sorry, Gary. Yeah. Carry on, carry on, mate. Carry on. That's okay. So that that match at uh, Bellevue was important um, because that was history in in the making. Yeah. Um, and then there was the well, uh, the overall uh, renowned for their FA Cup games over the years before I was involved. Yeah. And um, of course they played Liverpool at home, and that was a wonderful performance by them. I know they lost, but the, the football they played was quite um, exceptional. Mm. Can you remember that, AD? I can remember it because the uh, it was what was it January the fourth, I think, something like that. And on New Year's Eve, I had a, a an argument with a firework and lost. Uh, so I was in a bit of a bad way. And I remember meeting. Um, I, I refused. There was my wife, and you can't go to the football. Can't go to the football. And I said, I'm going. I'm sorry, but I'm going. And I went. And I remember bumping into Gerard Houllier, who was the Liverpool manager at the time. And of course, my face was like I'd done ten rounds with Mike Tyson. It was a right mess. Uh, 
um, from this yeah. firework going off. And uh, he, oh, are you sure? Are you all right? You, you sure you shouldn't be in hospital? And he was most concerned about it, which was nice because uh, obviously he didn't know I was a mank at the time, I'm sure. But but nonetheless, he was very pleasant and very nice about it. But it was it was a great game. It was foggy, as I remember, as well, um, which made it a little bit difficult to watch. And I think the yeah. other thing that reminds me is that it was a dodgy penalty, which Mr. Kuehl decided to go down a little bit too easily for my liking. <laughs> oh boy! Yeah. Oh boy! Um, I'm, I'm sorry, um, Aidy. Can I pick up on something? You said a dodgy face because of a firework. Yeah. Um, what did you get struck later on in years? <laughs> I should treat that remark with the contempt that it deserves, Mr. Nicholas. Um, no mo- problem at all. Moving on, moving on. Um, now you're very connected to Bournemouth. Um, uh, you know, what, how's things going at Bournemouth? Do you see um, them maintaining their, st- their Premier League status? I think they will if we get started again. I say if, if the Premier League gets started again. And I have my doubts. There is so much going on at the moment that uh, everyone's having their, their say about it. No one knows what's going to happen because everything will decide on the figures, mm. these awful figures. Um, you know, we're all praying every day for the uh, figures to drop, uh, the health of our carers and nurses and doctors, and that comes first. And whilst the figures are high, uh, there's going to be a lot of anti um, starting anything now, I know we all want football back. I do. I miss it madly. Um, but we can only do what the government and the advisors say. Now, if they give the green light, fine for them to start training. Fine, but you've only got to have a situation where there are a few more deaths or some players catch it, like they are in Germany at this moment. Mm. And now, uh, will Germany have a uh, change of mind? I don't. I don't know. I'd love to see it back. Um, now, Bournemouth, I think there's enough in the team to keep them up. Just. Um, they've got the likes of Brooks, um, who's a wonderful player. He's been out nearly all the season. These are players coming back now, and that's going to that's gonna help the club. Um, King should be fit. So I think there's just enough in their running to keep them up. Um, but... If they do stay up this year, if they if they do, and I hope they do, then I think Eddie Howe is going to have to have a big, big change around because uh, the players, there are some players there, I think, are already thinking of their next move. And I think they will have to be sold off and, uh, and others brought in, which is easier said than done, of course. Well, I think but Bond- on the other hand, if they went down... Then they're going to get parachute payments. They'll sell two or three players, and they'll probably have a big amount of money to launch a campaign to come back again. Um, yes, I am quite. Well, I live right next door to them. Mm. I've covered them from the lower divisions up. Not always, but I've dropped in and out. And of course, when I got in the championship, I started doing more matches, and I do get on well with uh, Eddie Howe, who I think is an excellent coach. Um, and I think. If he ever left, I think there'd be a big question mark over the club. But uh, they obviously want him to stay. But I think it's coming to a time when he may have to... I personally think he may have to look to go elsewhere if he wants to move up the ladder. Do you think, though, I mean, Bournemouth have performed well enough, I guess, over the years in the Premiership, but they've always been 
you know, it's always been questionable, hasn't it? Towards the end of the season, uh, Bournemouth are just sort of hovering in that sort of yeah. dod- dodgy area where they could just as easily get sucked in as they as, as but they've managed to stay out. Um, do you not think that that puts a bit of pressure, extra pressure on Eddie Howe anyway? I would have done. I would have done in normal circumstances because you're dead right, um, Eddie. They have lost it. And I think some of the players, have, uh, some of them have been guilty of probably thinking of the beach. Oh, we're safe now. We're OK. Mm. And it's normally after they got safe that they, they, that they did that. Um, but this year, I think the, they've had time to think. They've had time to think, oh, crumbs, hold on, we could be in the championship next year. And that will cost them a lot of money. Uh, not only the players, but the club and everything. I would think with the with the players like Brooks coming back, I would think it will give them a squad that will give them the chance again. Because um, some of the other clubs have got horrendous uh, run-ins. I think Bournemouth are a little bit better. I can't think at the top of my head who they have got. But I think their run-in is a bit better than some of the others. And they they do play football. And on their game... They can be a match for anyone outside the top six. They have got the odd win over a top six club um, and a, a good a draw against them, but they are capable of beating the rest. Um, and it's a case of wait and see. But there should be an urgency in them, as there should be in every player. Having had this enforced break, every player should be bursting at the gut to play well for their teams. But of course, don't forget, a lot of the players have got that contract in their minds. Mm. You know, the contracts are coming up. Do I get injured? Do I force myself? Do I make that extra tackle? Yeah. What happens? Could it scupper my move to Man United? You mm. don't know. More of Graham's musical choices now, and I've deliberately kept the best two to the end of the show. And this is the first of the two. And this is, of course, Marvin Gaye and What's Going On. Hey, hey what's happening? Right 
And this is will know what I think of Marvin Gaye. I think that is absolutely brilliant. What's going on? So, you know, you've been a journalist for how many years now? 47. 47. Out of that time, first of all, what would you say is the premier top of the list uh, occasion interview that, you, that you've had in, in your career? The, the top one. The top one. I would have to say it's my biggest exclusive. And I'm looking at a photo now in my study, and it's me holding an England flag with Mohammed Al-Fayed, the Howard's owner and, and chairman of Fulham Football Club. Yeah. At the time, I was on the Sunday Mirror, and I was having a difficult, difficult spell with my sports editor. But that still didn't stop me going out to try and get good stories for them, uh, much to his annoyance. Um, anyway, I um, managed to get to Fulham on a night game, and uh, I waited outside for the chairman to come out and I sort of doorstepped him. Uh, he had all these heavies around him, doorstepped him and said, look, can I do a piece with you on Kevin Keegan? Now, Kevin was his manager and he was being highly linked with England, but there was always this problem, Fulham wouldn't let him go. And he said, yes, um, come and see me in Harrods. So the following day I went to Harrods, saw him in his private office and he, and he, and he admitted that... Um, he well let's let's face it he wanted a passport he'd wanted a british passport for years and he wasn't getting one and uh, he'd obviously seen this as a way if he, he gave a good gesture like this to the country then it might go in his favor and he admitted to me and said that i will give keegan will be my gift to the nation yes he can join england now that was the first time the chairman opened the drawbridge for, Egypt, for Keegan to step across. And that opened the way for the FA to start negotiations. And in, as we know, Keegan became the manager soon after. So I would think my all-time story, best exclusive, is that story because it had a big bearing. It helped the England, England get the manager they wanted. OK, well, you must have had uh, the occasional, I'm sure a man of your competence and experience, not many of them, but have have you ever had any moments where you wish the ground would have swallowed up and uh, taken you away from a situation? Uh, yeah, um, one comes to mind. Again, it's Formula One. Um, Mansell, uh, it was in Dijon where Mansell got on the podium for the very first time. Um, in front in the French Grand Prix, and I went out there. It was my first race abroad, and uh, in Formula One, the racing press all stick together, 
uh, you have to because you know you, you've got to work as a team mm-hmm. um, to make sure because there's so many drivers, different languages being spoken. You've got to make sure you got the story. And uh, I went out there and being a bit arrogant, well, not arrogant. I didn't think I wanted to rely on my colleagues. And I said, no, I can cope with this. I'll be okay. And they said, no, come and jo- come and join us, Graham. Come and sit with us. I said, no, I'll be okay. Which is a foolish mistake because all around me, people talking in French, Belgium, Italian, Italians. And I was watching the race go past. His car's coming past under 80, 200 miles an hour. And Derek Warwick was driving the Renault at the time. And uh, Derek, a Southampton lad, great lad, Orsford, and a really fabulous guy. And, of course, um, I'm watching the race. And because the Renault, being the French Grand Prix, was getting a lot of publicity on the... on the, uh, It was being well looked after by the TV station, of course. And he was going past me. And all of a sudden, I saw the Renault at the side of the track. And, uh, and I thought, oh, dear, oh, dear. Um, and I'm taking notes and everything. And I saw uh, Derek getting out. And then the camera zoomed away. They didn't want to see a Renault out of the race. So they zoomed away, and I've gone back into the race doing my notes. But Derek Warwick um, was getting a lap time every time. And I'm thinking, well, he must have got back in there and drove on. Oh, wow, fantastic. Oh, well, OK, he's got engine problems or something. But, oh, no, he's going down each mu- each uh, race. Each, sorry, each lap he was going down the field. And unbeknown to me... Um, Unknown to me, his race had finished, but I thought it had carried on. So I've I've um, got to the end of the race. The story turned out to be that Nigel Mansell was on the podium for the very first time, and in the press conference, he uh, revealed that he sadly his mother had died uh, a few days beforehand, and it was to me a champagne and tears moment, and that was my headline and everything, and that was my intro, and I did the story. And then I put near the end of it, and uh, uh, Derek Warwick, who slid off the track in the 12th lap, uh, finished uh, 14th, sort of thing. And anyway, I'm, um, I've sent it over, very proud of my champagne and tears story. And on the following day, we're driving back to Paris, and my two colleagues at the front of the car said, oh, my God, that was a bit risky. That was a bit of a scary moment, seeing Derek Warwick like that. And he went, yeah, oh, dear. He said, when we saw him being stretched off, into the ambulance yeah. I, you know he said that was awful and I'm going sorry boys what are you talking about I said well Derek Warwick I said yeah what happened to him he said well he crashed didn't he I said I knew that but he carried on don't be silly Graham he didn't carry on he was taken to hospital we <laughs> gave you quotes about his ankle and everything I said yeah but but so the computer said he finished yes. no Graham when you when you go out of a race the times all go underneath a line and they're the teams that are out of the race, the cars out of the race, but they're still given lap times and we go through the laps. And my heart just sunk. I had this sick feeling. <laughs> my first trip abroad, and I've got Derek Warwick bravely finished 14th when he'd um, been on a stretcher, you know, shown on a stretcher going into an ambulance. So luckily for me, not many people spotted that, and a couple of people did did compliment me on the champagne and tears story, but it was not one of my finest moments. So it actually, me, from then on, I never left the boys. <laughs> it actually snuck through, then nobody picked it up at back at base then either. Oh, I did pick it up, would you believe it? I, mm. I, I sometimes, I tell the story against myself now because it just brought it home to me that there are times you've got to work as a team. Uh, I remember Nicky Lauder uh, when he won his call. He'd had his bad accident 
in the fire and he got badly burnt, didn't he? And he came back, I think, to win his third title. Um, and uh, I was there at the time. I uh, covered it. And uh, after the race, it was the most, it was incredible Formula One story. And he was walking into the press room and I was there for the boys to get the, his comment from the press room. And as he walked in, a cameraman turned around and hit him right in the face with his camera. <laughs> oh. And he said a naughty word. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, he went to the, uh, he went up to the top to do an interview with uh, Murray Walker. But the pandemonium, the noise, I couldn't hear a thing. In yeah. the end, I had to jump out the window and tell the lads, sorry, boys, I couldn't get anything. But they already, they'd already got quotes from him, his wife, uh, a few books fallen off. Um, uh-huh. and, and so they got the story for me. But that time I couldn't add my little bit. But uh, no, there's been some um, interesting times, AD, yeah. in Formula One. But, but you, obviously, you... for in my life... You mentioned amongst your your uh, motor racing thing that you said you, your notes. Now, listeners, I've seen Graham's notes and how anybody, let alone himself, could understand his notes and turn that into an intelligent piece of, of intellectual copy. I will never understand. He sort of has a an old school book, like a textbook, uh, you know, an exercise book. And he puts a line down through the middle and he writes down one side and it's like if you know it's like a spider's crawled across the page and with with a, with a pencil behind him it's just unbelievable so how he's ever made it as a journalist i'll never know but then again listen to this for his final tune this is perfection itself is it not this is santana and europa
Wow, can that Carlos Santana play the guitar? That is absolutely brilliant. Europa from Santana. Aidy, it's called T-Line. It's shorthand. It's uh, a version of my bad writing, T-Line. I know what... And abbreviations. I know what shorthand is, Graham, and there's no way that that's any akin to shorthand. I've seen it up close, so you can... You can bull all you like, mate, but that's not uh, shorthand, I know. For a start... Well, um, it's got me by. It's got me by. In fact, I do love it when the younger journalists come along now, and of course, they've all got their tape recorders and their telephones, iPhones yeah, and yeah. everything, and laptops, and they all go, oh, my God, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm doing a bit of shorthand. Oh, my, is that shorthand? <laughs> and they're looking at me, and, you know, I wasn't the cleverest at shorthand, but it gets me by. So what do you reckon... Um, what do you reckon was your... Shortest ever interview. Oh, that's easy. Ayrton Senna, Silverstone. Um, yeah. I was uh, I was covering the British Grand Prix there, and uh, I was told by my office that he'd got uh, he had a driving offence for speeding outside the stadium, and could I ask him uh, about it? And uh, I was in the paddock, and he was coming through. Now I had interviewed him before uh, a few years before when he wasn't such a big superstar. Um, and uh, I had to say, uh, Ed, can I quit work, quit work, please? Um, I understand you've got a driving fine outside of Silverstone. Any comment? And his comment was, fuck off, and he walked away. <laughs> oh, lovely. I love it. Uh, sadly, my last interview with him, and uh, obviously we all know what happened to Ed. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that was a very short one. Tragic. And and just to finish off, Graham, what, what would you say was your, your best football moment uh, going right through your, your whole career? There must be one particular football moment that stands out. Cool, good question. Good question, I think. For after all 48 years, there's a 47 years, there's a lot to, uh, to, lot to recall. Um, well, I'm a very patriotic guy and I love watching England do well, but unfortunately, we haven't seen many good England performances. I probably would think there's only five matches. Five matches I've looked at over the years, I would say, has been a fabulous England performance. Um, and, and obviously, from my point of view as a journalist, I would have to say that um, England beating Holland um, at Wembley, I think it was 1990, uh, 1988, um, and it was just a wonderful performance uh, from them uh, to see England play so well like that. But really, I've got to go back many, many, many years um, and say sitting at home uh, watching the 1966 World Cup final with my late dad, Fred, uh, and seeing them win the World Cup in such dramatic fashion has got to be my all-time best memory. Well, Graham, it's been wonderful talking to you. I'm sure there's an awful lot more we could have talked about, and I think maybe we'll have to do another one of these sessions fairly soon. Um, but thank you ever so much for joining us. I'm sure that the uh, Three Valleys radio listeners, in particular the Yeovil Brigade, will, will, will you know, can uh, empathise with, obviously, all your, your, your Yeovil um, moments, and probably thank you very much for bringing Gary Johnson to the club as well. So uh, thank you ever so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Uh, and we'll talk to you again soon. My pleasure, Aidy. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and obviously I do hope that uh, Yoga will get back to the league as soon as possible. Thank you, mate. The heart is a blue. 
Well, that's it for another week. And uh, thanks to Graham Nicholas for a very interesting hour-long reminisce of his days as a journalist. 47 years is a long time to be a journalist. But uh, I hope you've enjoyed it, and especially his musical choice was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So well done, Graham. Thanks for that. Keep listening to Three Valleys Radio, and um, we'll join you again next week with another guest. So good night for now. Take you out of this place Someone you could lend a hand In return for grace